With each week, you get a natural disaster, and I'm not talking about the political kind. I'm uh, uh, saddened as you look around and you see uh, different parts of the world experiencing things like tsunamis as they did in Japan this past week. And one of the things that's interesting about living in this generation is how quickly you get pictures, video, footage, uh, and I don't want to date myself or make myself seem like an old fogey, but <clears throat> when I was younger, you had to wait till the Time magazine came out to get a Pulitzer Prize winning picture of some natural disaster on the other side of the world. And so it, it really has kind of made everybody a smidge numb that it really is no big deal when you see these photos anymore. It's, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, another natural disaster. Look at this dramatic photo of this tsunami coming ashore. And it's like, oh yeah, we've seen that a bunch. Um, I can recall specific pictures, um, uh, one in particular that was an, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning photo of a woman who was in a building fire and the firemen were waiting and, and trying to coax her into jumping into their net and, they, and, and she was at that place of saying, which is riskier? I'm here, I'm, I could burn or I could jump and I could die and there's this moment where she has to make a choice. You know, am I going to trust that uh, when I make this choice that this is going to work out for me? Uh, you call it the leap of faith. You can call it the taking a step from the lion's head like Indiana Jones 3 or whatever your frame of reference is. Uh, we all have had these experiences where we are called to let go of something and believe that in letting go of that, something else is going to happen, or God has some ordained purpose for us doing that. Let me give you a couple of for instances of how this has worked its way out in pastoral ministry. I normally have this conversation with young singles. In Florida, the church we were part of there, uh, lots of young people wanting to get married, and not a lot of people devoted to Jesus comparatively. And so young men and young women would say, uh, I want to marry somebody who loves Christ, and then they would start dating somebody who didn't know Jesus and at some point fall in love. And they'd have to be in this moment where they would be holding on to this, this hope. And then they'd have to let go of that and believe that something God had planned would be better. And so in letting go, they were opening up the possibilities of God doing something even greater. In all of our lives, there are those moments where we have something in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, he calls these uh, good things that have become ultimate things to us, where even things that God intended to be blessings in our lives, they become the means of life for us. They can't provide for our soul's deepest need, uh, and in fact, they clog up the works and prevent us from seeking the presence of God and the, and the, and the knowledge and the experience of knowing God as the true means to meeting our soul's need. And yet, we depend on them. We look to them. We look to them in many ways to give us life. And sometimes, that would be the end of us. Have you ever seen or heard of somebody who was drowning, and then somebody goes out to help them, and they panic and they begin to drown the person who's actually helping them, there's this sense in which they have to, at a certain point, 
stop striving and fighting and just let somebody rescue them. Just a moment of release where you go, I'm going to let go of this thing and I'm going to believe that something is going to replace it that's better. Principally, this is the struggle of the Christian experience in many, many ways. And today, uh, it's the essence of what we see in our passage. Jesus, as we've worked our way through the Gospel of John, has been moving towards this last week of his life, the Passover celebration in Israel, where he knows that he is going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Jesus knew his purpose. We've visited this and revisited this in weeks past. You can catch up on sermons online at prismchurch.com. As I've mentioned a number of times, uh, we do have uh, podcast availability, so you can go online and type into your iTunes store uh, Prism Church Sermons, and it'll download right to your phone. One of the things that we've talked about is that the cross, Jesus' death, is not something that Jesus was surprised by. And that may seem self-evident to you, but there are people who call themselves religious scholars, people who call themselves religious think tankers, who, who are trying to push this generation of Christians, and I speak specifically of the millennial generation of Christians, away from the idea that you know, Jesus had to die. And, and, and it's a, really a a struggle that is absent of any study of real Scripture because in just today's passage, just the verses in our reading in John 12 today, we have three very clear things that show us that Jesus not only knew he was going to die, but he knew why and how. In verse 27, it says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So Jesus is saying, this is, I've known that this is what I was going to be doing. In verse 32, it says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. So Jesus actually knew the purpose of his death. And then in verse 33, it says he even knew ahead of time how he was going to die. Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples, who like most of the nation is there to remember Israel's deliverance from Egypt through the Passover lamb, uh, a lamb who was sacrificed, and the blood was placed on the doorposts, and then the people were saved from the angel of death. And so they were let go and freed through the proverbial baptismal waters of the Red Sea and released to be the people of God. They're there to celebrate this. Jesus' disciples are there to celebrate this. Jesus, though, had a purpose for coming at the conclusion of his three-year ministry to this particular week. He told his disciples about this. He told them, but they couldn't genuinely comprehend the breadth of what he was saying. However, in hindsight, we look back and it's clear that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb that was not only symbolized in the Old Testament sacrificial system, but very specifically, Jesus was the sacrificial lamb at Passover designed to save us from the angel of death designed to save us from judgment. This is why it's particularly dishonest for some religious scholars to de-emphasize Jesus' death. It's central. There are things we are called to do, and today we had the privilege of hearing from two women and their organizations that are calling us to live out the Christian faith radically. But the starting point is to have had a radical experience of God's grace 
that is what propels us to do things that seem countercultural or counterintuitive, like taking in more kids, like the Anderson family. Who does that? Well, people that have experienced God's grace in Christ. You have three really high-spirited kids already. Let's bring some more in. I mean, God bless them. But it's not because they're good people. I mean, they are compared to me, but they're, it's because they've met Jesus in a meaningful way that they're stirred to do this. And this is the central point of the Christian message, reconciliation with God that produces a people that are helping to reconcile the world. In our context, in verses 20 through 23, Jesus is now at the festival, and there are non-Jews at the festival. Well, let's pick up the text here, and then I'll give you a little background before we have a couple of very simple principles and a picture that I think God wants us to see today. In verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. A couple things to point out right away. One is Jesus doesn't answer their question. <laughs> they say, hey, we want you to meet these Greeks. And he goes off on this whole other tangent that we'll get back to. Second thing I think is really interesting is that Andrew, if you know anything about the New Testament, he's always introducing people to Jesus. This is his thing. You know, early in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 41 and 42, Andrew actually is the one who meets Jesus. And then he goes and gets his brother, Simon, who we now know as the apostle Peter, and says, come, I want to introduce you to this guy. This is apparently his gig. So when Philip meets these Greeks, these people who are non-Jews, and we don't know if they are which of the classification of Gentile they are. There were, there were Gentile proselytes, people who had converted to Judaism from, uh, even though they weren't historically, ethnically uh, Jewish. And then there were people who were called Greek God-fearers, these people who hadn't become Jewish or converted to Judaism, but were around the periphery of the experience of the nation of Israel because they believed God was there. And, and so they would actually come to the festival as well. Well, these came to Philip, and Philip said, you know, Andrew's a little better at taking people to Jesus. Let me get him. So I have this picture in my head of Jesus being like, you know, Bono at, at a U2 concert, and then Bono having a friend, and then you meeting Bono's friend and saying, hey, can I meet Bono? You know, and so it's like a backstage pass kind of thing. They're wanting to meet the star. And for any number of reasons, they may have felt that they didn't, couldn't just walk up and have access to him. Part of that is the culture. They, there was both a literal, a physical wall that separated Gentiles from the temple courts where the Jews could go, and a metaphorical, symbolic, we are the Jews, the people of God, you're not. And so you can understand that they probably, like a lot of people, would think, I can't just march in and talk to Jesus, I have to get an intermediary, I need somebody to functionally go between me and Jesus and as we'll get to today, the good news of the gospel is nobody needs an intermediary anymore. Jesus 
is our mediator between the Father. You can go right to the Father. Well, they come to Jesus, and, and the plan of Jesus, obviously, was that all people of all nations would be granted access to the Father, that it wouldn't be just for the Jews. In Romans 1, it says it was first for the Jews because they both geographically and religiously are the people who are the keeper of the promises of God in the, New, in the Old Testament. But it was certainly, as we can tell from the New Testament and even the Old Testament, that the message of God's kindness and grace and His, His abounding love was for everybody in the world, for every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Jesus said in verse 32, as we read earlier, when He's lifted up, He'll draw all people to Himself. Now, obviously, not every single person in the world will believe. We, we know this from our experience because you have plenty of people in your orbit who aren't Christians and if you told them what, what we believed as Christians that a man came back from the dead and we worship him as God, some of them might think you're off your rocker. And so we know that that's not true. We also know scripturally that Jesus used the parable of the sheep and the goats to demonstrate that in the end there are going to be people that are cast out of the presence of God. And then we also know, biblically speaking, in Revelation, that there is going to be in Revelation 20 a moment where everyone is going to have to give an account. As we've said for centuries as the Christian church from the Nicene Creed, He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We have been weekly going through the New City Catechism, and New City Catechism question 28 actually addresses the question of what happens after death to those who are not united to Christ by faith. The answer to that is this, and then let me expound on it for a second, if you will. At the day of judgment, they will receive the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. They will be cast out from the favorable presence of God into hell to be justly and grievously punished forever. You may read that and go, wow, that's harsh. Or if you're here and you're not a believer and you showed up with your friends, you thought, wow, what a friendly place. Because you can read this stuff and be, wow. But let me, in context, let me explain what Jesus is doing and what the relevance of what Jesus is doing to this. Jesus is saying, we all deserve judgment for our sins, but he's going to take the punishment for us. He's going to take the hit. As was the case, and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper later, at the Passover, Jesus, celebrating with his friends, is going to take the bread and he's going to break it and he's going to go, this is my body, it's given for you. Jesus is going to offer a way out of judgment. He's going to offer an opportunity for us to be free from the punishment that we're deserved, that we deserve. You may choose, friends, family, people around us may choose I'll pass. Thanks. I, I, I don't think I'm sinful. I don't think I need to be forgiven of sins. And frankly, if I did and God required that, I wouldn't want to follow him anyway. So I'm going to go ahead and I, I got it covered. Thanks. They're going to effectively say, I'll pay for my sins on my own. That's what the New City Catechism is saying. It's not saying that, that people who are good won't be judged and people who are bad will be judged. What we're saying is that Scripture testifies, and what we'll see in the life of Jesus here in the last week of his life, is that Jesus is saying, we all deserve to be judged, but uh, you all deserve to be judged. Jesus would be saying, I'm going to die in your place. 
And if you're willing to let me be your substitute, if you're willing to let me be your sacrificial lamb, you can avoid this judgment thing. And, and that includes everyone, not just the Jewish nation, but the Gentiles as well. The Apostle Paul, who was a Jew, a Pharisee, but whose particular call was to be the, 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 the apostle, the, pro, the prophet to the non-Jewish people, had this to say in Romans 5, 1 and 2. And this is the means by which you get your backstage pass to see Jesus. It's an all-access pass. All right, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice knowing that we're going to get to see God, that our access to the presence of God is is bought by faith in what Christ has already done. You and I are at peace with God, not because we're going to be really good or really faithful or all these things that we are supposed to be doing as believers. It's because we are at peace with God, because we know that He loves us. Jesus speaking through Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit, telling these Gentile believers in Rome, you have an access pass to me. Paul spent his life being the apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus, obviously in his ministry, wanted to reach the Gentiles, but he never meets with this particular group of Gentiles in John 12. He kind of avoids the question, steps over it, and he does this. He makes time now the issue. Time's running out. And interestingly enough, this is as opposed to other times when he said to his disciples on a number of occasions, it's not my time. This is not my time. My time is coming. Finally, after all of these, it's not my time. It's not my time. He says, it's time. The shock that must have been for everybody who was accustomed to having him saying, you know, it's not my time yet. It's not the Father's appointed time. Now all of a sudden it's like, yeah, thanks for introducing these guys. It's time. Game on. And something changes in Jesus. His, his disposition becomes heavy. Last week we said that, we studied that Jesus was beginning the preparation for his death. Mary poured perfume on his feet and He told them to leave her alone, that the poor you're going to have with you, I'm going to be here for about another week. That's putting it in the vernacular. But what you can do is save the rest of this perfume for my burial. Jesus has got his mind on what's coming up for him. It didn't mean that he didn't want us to help the poor. It meant that at that moment, there was a higher priority, at that moment in time. And right now, it isn't that Jesus doesn't care about sharing the gospel, particularly with Gentiles like me. But he's saying, right now I've got a mission I've got to get done. There's something that's more important. I'm beginning to prepare for what will be difficult here. Jesus is preparing for what's going to happen next in God's plan. In this experience of preparation for his agonizing death, Jesus is going to do two things. Or at least going to surmise that there are two things that we can infer from what's being done in the passage here. And the first is, we're going to get a principle that should shape our lives. And then secondly, we're going to get a picture of God's grace and compassion. It's extended to the Son, but shown 
for our benefit. And that's really ultimately what you're looking for when you study scripture or go to church or listen to a sermon online. You're saying, I want to see Jesus. I want to see more of the attributes of God in the scriptures. So help me do this. And Jesus even says, listen, the reason God spoke here, it's not for my benefit. I knew all this. This is for you. There's some things you need to see in this. So here's the principle. The pathway to spiritual life is death. In verses 24 through 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I've come to enjoy seeds as a dietary supplement, but seeds were not designed to be a sustaining way of food. Seeds are supposed to go in the ground. They're supposed to produce vegetables and fruit, eventually things that really fuel our body. A seed that doesn't ever get to the ground never multiplies, never becomes something greater than its potential. And, and this is what's interesting about Jesus is he's talking about wheat in this agrarian farming context. He's saying, you know, unless this, unless this grain actually dies and falls into the ground, it's not going to produce anything for everybody to enjoy. And obviously, because he is headed for the cross, we now know that he is using this metaphor primarily to say, this is my life. I have to die when I'm put in the ground I will then resurrect and bear fruit. And in this case, what we see is Jesus saying, there is a lot of fruit to be had. In terms of saved souls, the fruit that Jesus produced by dying and being raised from the dead has made the children of God as numerous as the stars in the sky. And that's at least what Abraham was promised. Jesus' example is that we will find spiritual life by giving our life away as he did. If we serve and follow him, the fruitfulness of our lives will be more evident. We die to our own self-determination. We say, my life created by you for your glory and my enjoyment is in your hands. I'm going to release my life. I'm going to stop saying... I want this and I want that. I'm going to start saying, what do you want for me? I'm going to trust you. I'm going to release the grip I have on determining my life and what I need, want, and must have in order to live. I'm not going to take the good things that you've given me and make them ultimate things. You ever found that when you have to let go of something, it's, it's traumatic? And that there are times, it was Corey Tinboom who said she held the things that God had given her. She was a Holocaust survivor. She held them in an open hand because she hated when the father had to pry her fingers back. God wants you and I to release our lives to him and effectively be grains of wheat that die and are birthed in the ground so that real life can be born. Jesus said there's more joy in giving than receiving. Jesus, once again, practices what he preaches. He isn't saying, do as I say, 
not as I do. He's saying, do as I do. In Hebrews 12, 2, we're told, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus knew what he was about to go through, looked beyond it to the joy that would come as a result of his sacrifice. He'd taught previously that if we sought to save our lives, we would lose our souls. Giving our life away to him is the means of experiencing eternal life and spiritual revival. And from Matthew 6, 25 through 27, a similar discourse at a different time in Jesus' three-year ministry, this is what Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, Matthew 16, 25, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. So here we are again. There will be a day where each person will stand before the Father. And Jesus is simply saying, if you give your life to him, you'll experience eternal life. It is the means of spiritual life. Dying to yourself and saying, I'm going to humble myself and admit my need for God's grace Letting my self-pride fall by the wayside. These are the means of exaltation. This is how you are going to profit. What would it profit you to gain everything in this world but to lose your soul? The principle about letting go of our life in order to receive spiritual life is, is really true in two very clear senses. First, if you don't believe, follow, serve, you die in your sins. So giving your life allowing your life to be given, dying is what will produce eternal life. Secondly, in a real-life experience of walking in the desert that is this world towards the promised land, we are not going to experience and know the joy of why we were created, namely connection with the Father, unless we release the things that keep us from embracing Him. If you've got your hands so tightly gripped around something that you think is giving you life, it's very hard to believe that if you let go of that, you're not going to die. I had a friend uh, who inherited some money. Uh, his parents passed away, and, and long after they had gone, he slipped into a bit of a depression because he just felt like his life didn't have any purpose. And in many ways, it didn't. He had enough money where all he did was sit around and check on how his money was doing in the market. And he was slipping into a real dead spot of life. He went to a friend of mine who was a pastor, and this pastor told him, I think what you need to do is risk all that money. I don't know what in. Could be a business. Could be giving it all the way to charity. Could be doing something, though, but what's happening is your money has become too important to you. It, it, you've, you've become addicted to the security associated with it, so it's preventing you from looking to God for your soul's delight. Your money is actually getting in the way. You've got your hands around this so tightly that you can't actually enjoy the presence of God and the security that comes from knowing God. One of my favorite verses is Jonah 2.8. It says, 
Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. It's like a life verse. If I wasn't too old to get a tattoo because it would make me look like I was really reaching for my youth, I think Jonah 2.8 would be the one I'd get. We see here a principle that we can take with us, and that is spiritual life is born in death. The pathway to real life is dying. The picture we're going to see is beautiful. This is the second thing I'll share today. The Father's compassion is on display. John 12, verses 27 through 29, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is the third time recorded in the Gospels that the Father speaks for all to hear. The first was at Jesus' baptism. The second was at the transfiguration of Jesus before Peter, James, and John. And on this third occasion, it's the same thought that the Father is bringing, which is, this is my son. I'm proud of him. He, I'm well pleased with him. Jesus is at this really critical crossroad. He knows he's heading for an agonizing death. And for the benefit of everybody around, let alone Jesus, the Father speaks up and says, I'm going to answer your prayer. I not only have been glorified by you, I'm going to be glorified by you. I just think so much of you. The Father couldn't help himself. He's saying that you've glorified me, you're going to glorify me again, You are my son with whom I am well pleased. The Apostle John is famously quoted as saying how wonderful it is that we could be called the children of God, and that's what we are. And this is where we see that the the love that God has for his son, this love he also has for his adopted children, that'd be us. How great is it that today we had this wonderful organization come to talk about adopting children and fostering children and caring for children. This is the father saying, my adopted children, I love them with that same affection. I I care about them. I am pleased with them. I love them. Others in the crowd that heard the father say, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Some said there was an angel. Jesus said, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. He did it so that the people could see into eternity and know that the father wasn't obtusely watching his son die. This wasn't an emotionless moment for father, son, and Holy Spirit. It was gut-wrenching. Sacrifice is painful emotionally, physically. Jesus says his soul was troubled. And the word he uses means revulsion or horror. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm horrified. But why I'm, by what I'm facing. The son was in pain and the father spoke a word of strength. And when the father says he's been glorified and will be so again, he says he's feeling pride in his son's obedience. The father's glory is seen in his tender love for his son. The father's glory is seen in the mission of sending his son in the first place to redeem children from every tribe and tongue. The father's compassion is on display. By virtue of both his speaking to Jesus in the final steps of his son's obedience and 
in the rescue mission that He sent His Son on for our sakes. Grace is defined as unearned favor, unmerited. And God's level of compassion is displayed in such a way as to tell you, this is what I am offering you, not just a ticket out of hell. I'm offering you real life. Life where you can find identity and purpose and strength in who I made you to be, in your value to me as a daughter or a son. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But our Heavenly Father is pouring this out, proactively having assigned the responsibility of rescuing all nations to His only Son. And He's not doing this because we are wonderful people. Quite the opposite. I don't know how many good works you think you've done. I've met some people that have a, probably a better recounting of their good works than I do. They're, they're probably because they have more of them. But let's assume for a second you could put together a pretty hearty list of good things you've done for folks. I just want you to know something. Jesus thought about dying for you and died for you before you were born, let alone before you started working on the list. Romans 5, again, gives us great encouragement from the apostle to the Gentiles. He says this in verses 6 through 9, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. See, the Father wants you to see in His interactions with His Son, for our benefit, He speaks this word of encouragement to Jesus to see His compassion so that you would know that he wants to love you in a similar way. As we come to communion today, we not only remember what Jesus has done, but it's an opportunity for you and I to take those things in life that we have been clinging to worthlessly and believe by his grace that as we let go of those things, as we let go of that thing we think we can't live without, that person that we think we can't live without, and say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. That he is going to bring spiritual life to your soul. And perhaps you're here today and you've never received Jesus as Savior. You've, you've never become a Christian. You didn't know you could know you were going to heaven. You didn't know you could know your sins were all forgiven today. You didn't know you could be secure because of his kindness and him taking your place in suffering and dying. And today you can immediately be forgiven of your sins by a simple act of faith. The Scripture says we are justified by His blood. You are made just. You are made right with God by what Jesus has done for you. Today, He wants you to know that spiritual life is possible for you. Eternal life is possible for you. But you're going to have to die to your own pursuit of your own self-justification. You're going to have to let that go. 
If you want to know peace with God, you've got to come to him with nothing in your hands. You've got to say, all I have is your grace. Let's prepare to come before the Father in communion today.